This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening again. Welcome back. We are delighted to have all of you here tonight for our excellent lecture uh, with Dr. Gina, Gina Woods. She's an associate professor of endocrinology and metabolism here at UC San Diego and bone health specialist. She conducts research on bone marrow adiposity and its effects on skeletal health. Her own interests include calcium and vitamin D, topics of which she has lectured at professional conferences. She completed her residency in internal medicine and clinical and research fellowships in endocrinology at UC San Diego School of Medicine and earned her medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia. She's board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gina Woods. Thank you, Danielle. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. I have no disclosures. Um, Really, none. Um, So the objectives of the talk this evening are to understand what is osteoporosis, but also to review normal age-related skeletal changes because these two are not one and the same. We'll then talk about how to evaluate your fracture risk. We'll talk about medical mindsets and approaches to osteoporosis prevention and treatment. Osteoporosis literally means porous bone. It's a skeletal disease of compromised bone strength predisposing to fractures. Bone strength is a function of both bone density, which can be easily measured, and bone quality, which is less completely understood and more difficult to ascertain. But we know that bone strength um, depends upon geometry, the size and shape of the bone, the microarchitecture. So you can see here these are um, called trabecular plates and rods, so the architecture of the bone. Uh, determines its strength, and the rate of turnover. So we tend to think of our skeleton as a fixed structure, but actually we are building bone and breaking down bone throughout our entire life. And during adulthood, 10% of our skeleton is remodeled each year, and the rate of this turnover could influence bone strength. And there are other factors that are not completely understood at this time, but are active areas of research investigation. Osteoporosis has no symptoms unless a fragility fracture occurs. And we define a fragility fracture as one which occurs with low trauma, resulting from a standing height fall or less. So slipping in the bathroom should not normally result in a fracture, and if it does, we would consider that to be a fragility fracture. The three most common osteoporotic fractures are fractures of the spine, hip, and wrist. So you can see a a vertebral or spine fracture here. Uh, These can present with sudden back pain, um, with bending or lifting, but they can also be asymptomatic and are sometimes diagnosed incidentally on an x-ray that was done for another purpose. Hip fractures have the most morbidity and mortality associated with them. They almost always require surgery, and individuals often don't recover their previous level of functioning after a hip fracture. And wrist fractures are also common. They usually result from a fall onto an outstretched hand. Other fractures that are commonly associated with osteoporosis include fractures of the upper arm or humerus, the lower leg, ribs, and pelvis. There are a few fractures that are generally not considered to be osteoporotic fractures, and those include fractures of the fingers and toes and of the skull bones. 
The consequences of fracture can include pain, disability, increased health care costs, the need for rehabilitation or nursing care, and fear or anxiety of a subsequent fracture or loss of independence. There are two ways to make the diagnosis of osteoporosis. One is with the presence of a fragility fracture. So if a fragility fracture occurs, we know the bone is weaker than it should be. So regardless of the bone density, that is a diagnosis of osteoporosis. The other way to diagnose it is on a bone density scan, which we will talk about more when we talk about assessing fracture risk. So now we're going to briefly review what we know about normal musculoskeletal changes with aging in healthy adults. This graph shows bone mass on the y-axis against age on the x-axis. And we can see that when we're young, we're building an accruing bone. Bone mass peaks between about the age of 20 and 30, and men achieve a higher peak bone mass than women. Bone mass is pretty stable in early adulthood, particularly in women during the reproductive years, but then it takes a steep decline around the time of menopause, and there's a slow, steady bone loss afterwards, whereas in men, it's more of a slow, steady loss throughout, uh, throughout adult life. And where our bone mass um, ends up in our later years depends both on how much peak bone mass we acquire in our youth and the rate of bone loss with aging. So a number of factors can influence peak bone mass. There are genetic determinants, there are ethnic differences, and environmental factors are also important. So physical activity and nutrition during childhood can play a role, and the presence of childhood diseases or medications can impact uh, peak bone mass acquisition. Factors contributing to bone loss are uh, the main two are aging and sex steroid deficiency. So the loss of estrogen and testosterone with aging contribute to bone loss. There are probably other factors that are not completely understood, and this is another area of active research investigation. This data comes from a study um, out of Denmark where they looked at bone mass against age in healthy men and women who were not taking any medications for osteoporosis. And this shows bone density as a function of age in women at four sites. The circles represent premenopausal women, and the tri um, triangles are postmenopausal women. So we can see that in premenopausal women, bone mass is pretty stable. The only site that showed any decline was the hip. But after menopause, there's a, a steady decline with age. And in men, there was more of a slow, steady decline throughout adult life between the ages of 20 and 80. And when they compared the men and the women in this study, the authors concluded that the overall percentage of bone loss was pretty similar in men and women at all of the different sites except for the forearm, where women lost 50% more bone than the men. This study looked a little more in-depth at the rate of bone loss in women who were not taking bone, bone medications. Um, so points along this dotted line indicate stable bone density. So you can see in the 20s, women are actually gaining bone density. Then it stays stable during premenopause until around the age of 40, where it starts to decline. The most rapid bone loss occurs during the menopause transition between the age of 45 and 60. And in postmenopausal life, the rate of bone loss slows, but there is still a steady bone loss. This is another Scandinavian study. I believe this one was from uh, Sweden. And they looked at the change in bone density, muscle strength, balance, and gait speed 
in uh, healthy adults, men and women, and they measured these four variables at two time points separated by 10 years. So I know this is a, there's a lot of information on this slide. I'll try to walk you through it. Um, here are the men and the women, and they broke them into age groups between the age of 40 to 60, 60 to 70, and 70 and older. We can see that there was a loss of bone density and muscle strength during all three of these intervals. So between age 50 and 60, both men and women were losing bone density and muscle strength, and this loss continued throughout subsequent decades. Balance remained intact during the 50 to 60 time frame, but after age 60, we started to see balance declining, and that continued into the 70s. And gait speed was maintained in the 50 to 60 range, 60 to 70, but over age 70, gait velocity also did slow down. So we talked about the definition of osteoporosis, and we reviewed normal changes in bone and muscle and balance with aging. So how do we assess our own fracture risk? There are a number of tools we can use, including clinical risk factors, bone density or DEXA scanning, something called TBS, which is a newer technology, and the FRAX, which is an online fracture risk calculator. The two strongest clinical risk factors for fracture are advancing age and having had a previous fracture. Beyond those two, there are other factors that are important, like the use of steroid medications, for example, prednisone. Having a parent who broke a hip is a risk factor. Having a low body weight, less than 127 pounds. Current smoking or excessive alcohol intake, which is considered greater than two drinks daily. So, um, Two, two or fewer drinks per day was not associated with increased fracture risk, but intake above that was associated with greater fracture risk, and that's independent of bone density. The next tool is a DEXA or bone density scan. Um, this is a, there's two companies that make DEXA scans. This is a Hologic. There's, there's also GE makes DEXA scans, but they're basically low radiation dose x-rays of the lower spine and hip, sometimes of the wrist. So who should be screened with a DEXA scan? <clears throat> um, it depends in part upon who you ask. So there are a number of medical societies that all have guidelines about screening bone density scans. Um, and they all are a little bit different, but most experts would agree that, most, that all women should be screened starting at age 65. The experts disagree on whether or not men should be routinely screened. Some say men should be routinely screened starting at age 70. Other groups say only men with risk factors. But most agree that younger postmenopausal women and men over the age of 50 who have any of the following should be screened. And these include radiographic osteopenia, which means that you may get an x-ray for another reason, and the radiologist comments that the bones appear demineralized. Anyone with a low trauma fracture, um, as I told you before, that's a fracture occurring from a standing height fall or, or less. Um, anyone who's lost more than one and a half inches from their peak adult height or who has any of the clinical risk factors that we previously reviewed. This is a sample of a bone density report. Um, you can see there are images of the, lum the lumbar spine, L1 through 4, and the hip. Um, so the spine can be problematic for, for bone density scanning. 
A lot of us have arthritis in the spine, and this can artificially elevate the bone density reading and occasionally can make the image uh, uninterpretable on the DEXA scan. And in that case, we may need to get an image of the wrist. Uh, and you'll see on your bone density report, there are two scores, the T-score and the Z-score. So the T-score compares your bone density to, the, um, to a normal, healthy, young Caucasian female reference database. Um, and the T-score is the number of standi- standard deviations difference between your bone density and that reference database. The Z-score compares your bone density to your peers. So a, a reference database that's matched to you for age, gender, and race or ethnicity. We make the diagnosis of osteoporosis based on the T-score. So a T-score of minus 1 or higher is normal. If it's between minus 1 and minus 2.5, that's called osteopenia or low bone mass. And a T-score of minus 2.5 or lower is considered osteoporosis. Severe osteoporosis is when the T-score is minus 2.5 or lower and there has been a prior fragility fracture. How frequently to get these bone density scans depends in part upon what your first scan shows. So this data comes from a study called the Study of Osteoporotic Fractures. They enrolled over 9,000 women across the U.S. at four different sites and followed them for many years. So you can see this data goes out to 18 years. And in this particular study, they were looking to see how long it would take for women who had normal bone mass or osteopenia to develop osteoporosis. And they determined that uh, if the initial bone density scan showed normal bone density or mild osteopenia, um, it it takes quite a while. So this hashed line here represents the point at which 10% of the group develops osteoporosis. So those who started with normal bone density or mild osteopenia took about 17 years for 10% of that group to develop osteoporosis. Those who had moderate osteopenia, it took about five years for 10% of them to develop osteoporosis. But if you had advanced osteopenia, a T-score between minus 2 and minus 2.49, it only took about one year for 10% of that group to develop osteoporosis. So based on this data, the authors of that study suggest that the repeat screening interval should depend upon your initial bone density score, ranging from two years for those with uh, more advanced osteopenia to up to 10 to 15 years if you're starting out with normal bone density or only mild osteopenia. Now, if your initial scan shows osteoporosis, that's a different story. Um, Then we would suggest repeating the bone density at the soonest interval where we would expect to see a change. So typically that's two years, but if we're starting a treatment where we may see a change sooner, it may be repeated after as little as one year. The next tool we have is the FRAX. And uh, I should mention that although we know that bone density screening is a very good predictor of fracture risk, it does turn out that the majority of people who have osteoporotic fractures don't have osteoporosis on their bone density scan. They have osteopenia. And the reason for this is because so many more people fall into that osteopenia group. It's a much larger group. So the majority of fractures occur in that group. So there's been a lot of interest in trying to determine how do we figure out who that has osteopenia is most likely to fracture. So Dr. John Canis developed this fracture risk assessment tool. He used cohorts from Europe, North America, Asia, and Australia, and it's been well validated in all these different populations. And this is a free online calculator. You can just Google FRAX, um, and you can calculate your own FRAX score. So um, it asks you your country and your race, 
your age, sex, weight, and height, and a number of questions, including your bone density. Uh, you can use this tool even if you don't have a bone density reading. If you leave this blank, it will still calculate a risk for you, and, and those, that risk has been validated to be pretty accurate even without the bone density reading. So then when you hit the Calculate button, it gives you two numbers, a 10-year risk of having any major osteoporotic fracture and a 10-year risk for hip fracture. So in this example, those numbers are 21 and 6.2%. So the experts recommend that we would treat someone who has a 10-year risk of at least 20% for major osteoporotic fracture or 3% for hip fracture. And I should also mention that FRAX is designed for patients with osteopenia. So it is not intended for people who already have osteoporosis based on their bone density because we would already recommend treatment for those people. Uh, also, this is not recommended if you are, are on a medication for osteoporosis because the medications will reduce the fracture risk. So the numbers that FRAX gives you will be higher than the true risk because the medications reduce that risk even more so than what you would expect from the change in bone density. Um, you'll notice at the bottom it says, if you have a TBS value, click here. So this takes us to our next topic, which is the trabecular bone score. So I told you that the spine can be problematic on DEXA scan because of the arthritis changes that can affect the reading. So there was interest in trying to overcome this. Um, and out of that interest grew this trabecular bone score. So it's a software package that analyzes the bone density images. So it doesn't require any additional images. And it looks at the pixelation. And it gives you a score. A uh, higher score means a healthier bone. So you can see in this example, this bone appears healthier and has a greater TBS score than this bone here, which um, it, this is considered a more degraded reading and would indicate a higher fracture risk. So the TBS score is a good predictor of fracture, fracture risk, um, independent of bone density. But if you use both your bone density reading and your TBS score, that's um, the best way, we think, to predict fracture risk. So we talked about osteoporosis, what it is, how to assess your fracture risk. Um, but before I go into the specifics of the treatments for osteoporosis, I want to take a minute to talk about medical mindsets. <clears throat> so I recently read this book by Drs. Jerome Gropman and Pamela Hartsband. They're a husband and wife team from Harvard, and they wrote this book called Your Medical Mind, How to Decide What is Right for You. They interviewed many patients about their approaches to medical decision-making, and they um, came up with these six medical mindsets. So I'm going to apply their algorithm to an example of osteoporosis. So you can imagine that you have a bone density scan, and your doctor tells you that your bone density is low, and you have osteoporosis, and it's time for medication. So there may be some people out there who feel that they want to be proactive and do everything possible and more to achieve the perfect bone density reading. Whereas there may be other people who say, well, my bone density doesn't need to be absolutely perfect, and I would prefer to be on the minimum number of medications possible. So they refer to these mindsets as the maximalist or the minimalist. Then when you're offered a treatment, there may be some people out there who would be more drawn to natural approaches, letting the body heal itself, or using treatments that are derived from nature, whereas other people may be drawn toward the latest scientific advances. So they refer to these as having a naturalism orientation or a technology orientation. 
And when it's time to start taking a medication, some people may undertake the treatment confident that they're on the right path, whereas others may be more concerned, read the package insert, worry about all the side effects, and wonder if they should really take the medication. So they refer to these as believers or doubters. So this is an interesting way to think about where you fall in in these mindsets and maybe even a good conversation to have with your physician who has his or her own mindsets as well. So now that we've talked about mindsets, we can talk about the different options for approaching osteoporosis prevention and treatment. The first thing I evaluate when assessing a patient for osteoporosis is nutrition. So we want to make sure that um, the diet has adequate calorie and nutrient intake. Some older adults can be prone to weight loss, and when we lose weight, unfortunately, we lose the things that we want to hold on to, like bones and muscles, and so making sure that we're getting enough calories, protein, and a variety of healthy foods, particularly fruits and vegetables. And then calcium and vitamin D are particularly of interest for bone health, so we'll talk a little more about those. So the current recommendations are for 1,200 milligrams of calcium daily. Dietary sources are preferred rather than calcium supplements. The reason for this is that we know that calcium supplements increase the risk for kidney stones, and there have been some research groups that have reported that calcium supplements may increase the risk for cardiovascular events. Now, that has not been shown in every study, and it remains controversial, but since it's out there, we say we prefer dietary sources if possible. Luckily, calcium comes in a lot of different foods, and if you're getting at least one calcium-rich food with each meal, you're probably on the right track. There are online calculators through the National Osteoporosis Foundation to assess your daily intake and try to figure out if you're getting enough calcium through food. Vitamin D comes in two forms. Vitamin D2 is ergocalciferol, that's the kind that plants make, and D3 is cholecalciferol, that's the kind that comes from animal sources and the kind that we make in our skin when we're exposed to UVB radiation. Um, Vitamin D3 is also available as an over-the-counter supplement, whereas D2 is a prescription medication. And D3 is found in a number of foods like salmon, egg yolks, and it's added to cereals and milk. A number of factors can affect our skin's ability to produce vitamin D, and these include our latitude, um, the season of the year, our skin tone, the use of sunscreen, and aging. And unfortunately, our skin becomes less efficient at producing vitamin D as we age. The recommended intake of vitamin D again varies depending on who you ask. The Institute of Medicine says between six and 800 international units a day is recommended. Um, Other groups suggest more, like the Endocrine Society says 1,500 to 2,000 international units per day. Um, The safe upper limit, most people agree on 4,000 as a safe upper limit. The Endocrine Society has listed 10,000, but they've come under some scrutiny because um, there's been a study that shows that high intake of vitamin D does increase the risk for um, high calcium in the urine, which could predispose to kidney stones. So they now suggest that between four and 10,000 international units a day should be taken under medical supervision. Vitamin D is generally very safe. Uh, minimal side effects, it's hard to become to- develop vitamin D toxicity, but the risk of taking too much could include high blood calcium or kidney stones. The next thing we assess is physical activity. We know that exercise, weight-bearing exercise, prevents or reverses bone loss by almost 1% per year. 
And in this particular study, they did not find a difference between um, aerobic weight-bearing exercise and muscle strength training exercise. Both were beneficial. We also know that balance training may reduce falls. In particular, there's good evidence for Tai Chi for falls prevention. And preventing falls obviously will help to prevent fractures. There are a few exercises one might want to avoid if we have osteoporosis, particularly osteoporosis in the spine. We want to avoid forward um, spine movements like abdominal crunches because these can put pressure on the anterior spine and increase the risk for vertebral fractures. So rather than doing sit-ups, you could consider doing something like a plank, which also engages the core abdominal muscles but without putting any pressure on the spine. Yoga has become very popular and can be part of a healthy lifestyle and can help balance. However, there was a recent case series out of the Mayo Clinic that showed a number of patients coming in with vertebral fractures that occurred during yoga. So the experts um, who published this article suggest that uh, poses to avoid if one has spine osteoporosis are ones that would involve a lot of flexion, extension, or torsion of the spine. So you want to avoid those poses there on the left, but the ones on the right are fine. So anything where your spine is in a nice, straight, neutral position would be okay. Um, So the next step in osteoporosis prevention and treatment may involve getting a medical evaluation by your primary care physician or an osteoporosis specialist. uh, This would include having your medical history reviewed, particularly with attention toward medical conditions or medications that may be associated with bone loss, reviewing your family history, performing an exam, and in certain cases, doing lab work to look for underlying causes of bone loss. We'll now go into the section on osteoporosis medications, and there's basically four classes, the bisphosphonates, rank ligand inhibitor, there's only one in this class, denosumab, anabolic agents, there are two in this class, um, and then the selective estrogen receptor modulators. But before we talk about each of these drugs, we're going to just briefly talk about the bone remodeling cycle, um, because this gives us a framework for understanding how these medications are working. So this cell right here is called an osteoclast, and its job is to resorb the bone. So I told you that we're always building bone and breaking down bone throughout life. This is the cell that breaks down bone. And you can see it has this ruffled border. It binds to the bone and releases enzymes that actually dissolve the bone, releasing calcium into the bloodstream, and it creates this little resorption pit. Uh, And then the osteoblast is this cell here, which comes along behind and lays down new bone. Initially, it's protein, mainly collagen, which then becomes mineralized and new bone forms. And these cells communicate with each other, and these activities usually go together. It's coupled, and it's called the bone remodeling cycle. So the bisphosphonates inhibit bone breakdown. They bind to the bone and are taken up by that osteoclast, and they inhibit its ability to break down the bone. Um, They do have a long half-life, so they they bind to the bone, get taken up by this osteoclast, and then are released and recycled within the bone. So this long half-life can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Um, And this class of medication has been on the market since the 1990s. They've been around a long time. There are a number of medicines within this class, Alendronate or Fosamax, Resedronate or Actinel, Ibandronate or Beniva, and Zoledronic Acid, which is Reclass. This one is an intravenous medication. 
As a class, these medications reduce hip and spine fractures overall by about 50%. You can see the numbers ranging between maybe 40% and 70% for the different medications at the diff different sites, with one exception, and that is that ibandronate did not show a reduction in hip fracture risk. This is a study that was just in the news about a week or so ago. You may have heard about this. It got a lot of coverage. So this is looking at one of the bisphosphonates, zoledronate, or reclast. Um, and the study was done in Australia and New Zealand. And they gave zoledronate to um, women 65 or older who had osteopenia, not osteoporosis. Um, and they wanted to see if this medication would prevent fractures. And they gave... Uh, four doses over six years. So it was a dose every 18 months to half the women, and the other half received saline infusions, or placebo. They found that reclassed improved bone density in the women who received the medication. Uh, so bone density increased in the spine, hip, and total body compared to the women who received placebo, where bone density declined. And in, on this graph, you'll see the group who got the tre active treatment, zoledronate, are in blue, the placebo group in red, and these represent fracture rates. So the fracture risk was reduced with the treatment um, in uh, any fragility fracture, non-vertebral fracture, and symptomatic fracture. They were all reduced, as was change in height. So the women who received the zoledronate had less height loss compared to those who received placebo. So this was an important study because previously, this is a group of women that were, where treatment would not necessarily have been recommended, those in the osteopenia range. But this study does show that these women may benefit. And so we'll have to see how much practice patterns change based on this data. So like all medications, the bisphosphonates do have risks. Um, the IV zoledronate that we just discussed can cause an acute phase response, which basically means flu-like symptoms for a few days following the infusion. And this happens in one out of three patients, usually after the first infusion. If it doesn't happen with the first dose, it's unlikely to happen with the subsequent doses. This, um, these symptoms can be improved with Tylenol, and they usually don't last more than a few days, but it is um, definitely a risk. The oral forms can cause some GI upset, but this can be reduced by taking the medication as directed, which means taking it on an empty stomach with a full glass of water, and then waiting 30 to 60 minutes before eating or taking other medications, and you have to remain upright, seated or standing during that time. Infrequently, we see mild hypocalcemia and muscle pain with these medications, and very rarely, we see atypical femur fractures and osteonecrosis of the jaw. But because these two are much feared and discussed, I will go into these in a little more detail. So atypical femur fractures are low trauma fractures of the mid-shaft of the femur, and they have a certain characteristic radiographic appearance. They can be bilateral, and they're usually associated with long-term bisphosphonate use. So most people who have had these fractures have been on the medication for over five years. The estimated incidence ranges, depending on which study you read, from between 1 in 100,000 to 5 in 10,000 bisphosphonate users. So they are very rare, but they are much feared by patients and physicians, because here we're giving a medication to prevent fracture, and this different type of fracture is a possible risk. So it is a big concern. So this chart gives us some numbers. 
Doctors like to think in terms of numbers needed to treat or numbers needed to harm. So this graph says that if we treated postmenopausal women for three years with a bisphosphonate, how many women would we need to treat to prevent one fracture? And how many women would we need to treat to cause one of these bad outcomes, like an atypical fracture? So the number needed to treat says that if we treated 14 women for three years, we could prevent one vertebral fracture. If we treated 90 women for three years, we could prevent one hip fracture. And if we treated 35 women for three years, we could prevent any non-vertebral fracture. Conversely, we talk about the number needed to harm. So if we, and this depends upon, as I mentioned, there's various studies um, that give different estimates to the incidence of these atypical femur fractures. So depending on what number you use to assess the risk, we would have to treat between 800 and 43,000 women for three years before we caused one atypical femur fracture. So that can give you a sense of how the numbers play out there. So because of this risk of atypical femur fractures, we now limit the duration of treatment with bisphosphonates. So we treat for a period of time, and then we give a drug holiday. So we think 10 years is safe for most patients based on the studies that have been done, but we individualize this based on the person's fracture risk. So for those at lower risk of fracture, we now tend to treat for between three and five years and then give a drug holiday. However, if someone's at very high risk for an osteoporosis-related fracture, we may consider recommending treatment for up to 10 years before we take a drug holiday. The next side effect that we'll discuss is osteonecrosis of the jaw. This is an exposed bone in the mouth that does not heal within eight weeks. <clears throat> it is estimated to occur in less than one out of 10,000 bisphosphonate users, and many of the cases that have been reported were with the IV bisphosphonates that were given to patients that were receiving the medication for cancers that may have affected the bone. So it's a different patient population, and a, a, the medication is given at a monthly interval instead of yearly. So it's a little bit different um, in that situation. But for osteoporosis treatment, it seems to be very, very rare. Um, but I will say that we often ask about any plans for upcoming dental work, and if there, because that could be a risk uh, for this to occur. So if there's a dental procedure planned, we may hold off on treating the osteoporosis until after any kind of oral surgery is completed. Okay, so now we're gonna move to the next class of medication, the rank ligand inhibitor, denosumab or prolia. This is also an anti-resorptive agent, so it acts on the osteoclast to inhibit this cell's activity. Um, so that is acting similar to the bisphosphonates, but by a different mechanism. It's given as a twice-yearly subcutaneous injection, and it's very potent at um, inhibiting bone resorption. The FREEDOM trial showed that denosumab reduces vertebral fractures by 68%, non-vertebral fractures by 20%, and hip fractures by 40% in postmenopausal women who are at high risk for fracture. Denosumab also has some potential risks, so atypical femur fractures and osteonecrosis of the jaw have also been seen with this medication. Skin infections were reported, um, and hypocalcemia, which can be severe. So I didn't mention that the bisphosphonates are contraindicated in individuals with um, severe kidney impairment, but denosumab is not. So denosumab is not cleared by the kidney, and it is approved for use in those with kidney problems. However, in, the, in that patient group in particular, we monitor closely for hypocalcemia. 
And the main difference to be aware of is that whereas with the bisphosphonates that have a long half-life, we treat and then we give a drug holiday, with denosumab, there's no drug holiday. It's very potent when it's active for six months, but at the end of that six months, the effect quickly wears off. And so if one were to stop taking denosumab, we would want to do something else to protect the bones from, from bone loss and fracture. <clears throat> the next class we'll talk about are the anabolic agents, and there are two medications in this class. The first is teriparatide, or Forteo. Um, this is an anabolic agent that stimulates the osteoblast, the cell that builds new bone, so it increases bone formation. It's given as a daily uh, self-injection, so it comes in a pen, and patients give this to themselves every day at home as an injection. We've learned that if it's used after an anti-resorptive, so if you take Fosamax first and then you switch to teriparatide, the effects of teriparatide are slightly blunted. So they're now the recommended... Um, the recommended um, way to do it would be to give the anabolic agent first and then follow it up with the anti-resorptive because similar to denosumab, the effects of this medication wear off very quickly after you stop taking the medication. Teriparatide was shown to reduce verte vertebral fractures by 65% and non-vertebral fractures by 35%. The risks include, um, so there is a black box warning on this medication because in lab rats that were given about 30 times greater dose than we give to humans, uh, some of the rats developed osteosarcoma, which is a type of bone tumor. So because of that, the FDA limits the duration of treatment to two years. Also, this medication is contraindicated in anyone who's had prior radiation to the skeleton. So radiation treatments for cancer that in involved exposing the skeleton to radiation um, would be a contraindication for use of this medication. And infrequently, hypercalcemia has been reported. The next anabolic agent is called abaloparatide, or Timlos. It acts on the same receptor as teriparatide. Um, and this is the active trial, which actually was a placebo-controlled trial where they gave postmenopausal women either placebo or abaloparatide, but then they also gave a group open-label teriparatide. And it turns out these two groups were very similar. So teriparatide and abaloparatide were very similar in pre preventing fractures. So they gave, this part of the study lasted 18 months, the placebo versus abaloparatide. And then at the end of the 18 months, they gave both groups alendronate. And they found that during the first 18 months, there was an 86% relative risk reduction in vertebral fractures in those who received baloparatide. And then this shows the part of the, the two years of the study where both groups are now receiving alendronate. And you can see the risk reduction was maintained. So this also uh, supports that we like to give the anabolic agent first and then follow it up with the anti-resorptive agent. The risks of abaloparatide are similar to teriparatide, we think, but this medication was just approved last April, so we don't have as much real-world experience. Um, it does have the same two-year limit, and actually that applies to both drugs. So if you've already had two years of teriparatide, you would not be a candidate for abaloparatide um, because of the same uh, issue with the osteosarcoma in rats. The next 
um, group that we'll discuss is estrogen and the selective estrogen receptor modulators. So we know that estrogen inhibits bone resorption and maintains bone formation. And in the Women's Health Initiative study that came out in 2002, we saw that estrogen reduced hip and spine fractures by 34%. However, estrogen is no longer recommended for the primary use of osteoporosis treatment due to the non-skeletal risks, which include breast cancer, coronary events, strokes, and blood clots. However, estrogen is still used sometimes to treat menopausal symptoms in younger postmenopausal women. So if, if a woman is taking estrogen for menopausal symptoms, she would be getting a benefit on her bones and may not require any additional treatment for osteoporosis. Raloxifene or Avista is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It has estrogen-like activity in the bone, but acts as an anti-estrogen in other tissues, like the breast. Uh, Raloxifene is approved for osteoporosis treatment. Uh, there is one other drug. It's conjugated estrogen plus bazadoxifene. That's a different selective estrogen receptor modulator. This medicine is called Duave, and it's FDA-approved for the treatment of menopausal symptoms and osteoporosis prevention. It is not approved for osteoporosis treatment. Um, Raloxifene reduced vertebral fractures by 30%. It comes in a convenient once-daily oral dosing, and there's no limit on the duration of treatment. And um, it's sort of in the same general family with tamoxifen, although it's, it's a different medication. But raloxifene was looked at for breast cancer prevention in women who were at high risk for breast cancer, and it did show that it decreased the risk of breast cancer in those women. Side effects include hot flashes, leg cramps, and venous thromboembolism with rates similar to estrogen. So um, if 170 women are treated with raloxifene, one may develop a blood clot as a side effect. So this table summarizes all of the available um, medications that are currently FDA-approved for osteoporosis. Um, actually, estrogen is not FDA-approved for osteoporosis, but this shows... Um, currently available medications. There are additional medications in clinical trials, so there may be more on this list in the very near future. So that's something to look forward to. So what approach is right for you for osteoporosis prevention and treatment? The choice depends. It depends upon your individual risk factors and also on your personal beliefs and medical mindset. So with that, I will thank you for your attention. I'll be happy to take any questions. Yes. Um, I came here to reduce my anxiety, but it hasn't existed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always rode that nice line until I was 82, you know, or I was just at the edge. Now they want to give me the infusion. And I think a lot of people that have opinions about it, I don't know where they got the opinions, but there's a lot of them out there. And uh, I hope to that. Uh, yeah, so the question was about uh, infusion. I'm, I'm assuming you mean a reclassed infusion, Zoledronate infusion? I don't know which one. Have said it. You take it for three years, and it's once a year. Yeah, that's Zoledronate. So, that, yeah, that's the one that um, the recent study last week came out showing benefits on fracture risk reduction, prevention of height loss. Um, it, it is effective for preventing fractures and preserving bone density. You know, there are risks, as we reviewed. Um, so I guess it depends on if you're a believer or a doubter. Uh, 
<laughs> sure. Um, here I can. It's Z O L E D R O N A T E. Sure. Yes. Yes. So when you get a bone density scan, they'll do your hip and your spine. And at the hip, they give two measurements. One is femoral neck and one is total hip. So yes, you're very um, observant. On FRAX, it asks specifically for the femoral neck bone density. Um, So if you have that information, you can add it to FRAX. Yes? Uh, How does all this differ from Good question, I know. So many of the studies just enrolled women uh, because fractures are more common in women, but osteoporosis is a big problem for men as well. Um, I guess I would say um, that, so the T-score that you get, uh, even for men, compares you to a female reference database. So the T-score is the number of standard deviations difference between your bone density and a 30-year-old Caucasian female reference database. And the reason we compare men to women is because men and women fracture at the same absolute bone density. So men tend to have higher bone density, but if their bone density is as low as a woman, it would be they would have the same T-score. Um, so the treatment is recommended based on the absolute bone density and the risk of fracture at that level. Um, one thing to note is the balloperitide. The one that was just approved last year is currently not approved in men. It's just approved in women. And then the selective estrogen receptor modulators are approved in women. But the other medications are approved in men, um, the bisphosphonates and um, denosumab um, and for, uh, Forteo. So... Yeah. Fracture data for men. Uh, fracture data incidence of fracture. Um, so this, the statistic is that um, one in two women over the age of fifty will develop a fracture in their remaining lifetime, and one in four men. So it's more common in women, but affects a lot of men as well. And yeah, so and the screening guidelines would be for men starting at age seventy. A lot of experts recommend routine screening at age seventy. Um, or earlier if there are additional risk factors. Yes? Can you show us one more time that this helps all medications? Sure. Any other questions? Yes. So I frequently get asked about other supplements, um, K2, boron, um, other micronutrient supplements. I would say there is evidence that some of those micronutrients are important for bone health. However, physicians, like myself included, tend to be reluctant to recommend those supplements because we just don't have the same studies that show that they prevent fractures. So we don't have the same data for safety and efficacy. So I prefer to recommend um, a healthy, balanced diet and trying to get all of those micronutrients from food. Yes? What if you show no improvement in your bone density after alendronate? Okay, good question. If you show no improvement in bone density with alendronate. So even if your bone density stays stable, we still know that fracture risk is reduced. 
Um, so some of the medications have a more dramatic effect on the bone density measurement than others, but um, particularly some of the bisphosphonates, even if the bone density stays stable, fracture risk is reduced, and um, you know, you're, not the, you're not developing the age-related loss that would have maybe have otherwise occurred. Um, if you're on treatment and the bone density continues to decline, then we may wonder if the medication is really getting in. So Fosamax in particular um, may not be getting absorbed well, uh, and then maybe we would consider a different medication. So the question was about uh, 10 years of Fosamax with no improvement in bone density. Um, I would, it would be hard for me without knowing the full medical history to really make a recommendation, but I would say, you know, Again, this is where you have to individualize the treatment decision, review the medical history. Have there been any fractures? If not, and everything else, you know, the person is otherwise healthy, you know, maybe take a drug holiday. Uh, But that would have to be, I would have to kind of do a full evaluation to make a firm recommendation. Yes. So it slows them down, too. The question was, what does... What do the bisphosphonates do to the osteoblasts? So as I showed you, those cells communicate with each other, and when the activity of one is increased, the activity of the other tends to be increased and vice versa. So it basically kind of quiets down that bone turnover, so the osteoblast activity is also reduced. And um, this can be measured with, there's something called bone turnover markers, so they're blood tests that assess the activity of those cells. And we know when people are on treatment that the um, the activity of both are are suppressed. So if you break a bone, then how well do you heal? With yes, good question. The question is about fracture healing with bisphosphonates. There has been concern about this, and in particular in patients who come in with an osteoporosis fracture, there was a question about should we um, initiate a bisphosphonate right away or wait and let the fracture heal. Um, the data suggests that there's no... Um, detrimental effect of putting someone on a bisphosphonate within a short time frame after a fracture. Uh, There is interest in looking at the anabolic agents, the one that stimulate new bone, to see if they promote fracture healing. There's pretty good data in animals that that's the case. The data in humans is less clear, but there are people um, looking at that. Yes? Periparatide? Possibly. I mean, that would be something to consider. Like I said, if I think I would want to use an anabolic agent at any point, we prefer to use it before the anti-resorptive because that seems to be the best sequence to do things in. Yes. Um, So I personally, first question was about a website. I don't have a website myself. UCSD, um, endocrinology, we have a, a section on there about our osteoporosis clinic and the providers that see patients. Um, I do see patients in the Hillcrest Clinic and La Jolla Clinic uh, for osteoporosis. So yes. Yes? Uh, would everyone will get uh, osteoporosis if you live long enough? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, it's, you know, the older we get, the higher the risk, but it doesn't mean everyone is definitely going to get it, no. All right, well, thank you again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.